This is Blaine Scully. Welcome to the Captain's Code. Each week, we talk with the leaders of high-performance teams about the role they play in making a culture of excellence possible. Ann Kletz is the CEO and co-founder of Goal 5, the first sports apparel brand designed specifically for the female athlete. A lifelong soccer player, coach, and certified referee, Ann is passionate about empowering young people, and especially girls, through sport. A social entrepreneur with extensive leadership experience in both for-profit and non-profit businesses, Ann is known for her ability to facilitate organizational growth and develop startups. She received the inaugural Fund for Social Entrepreneurs Award and was recognized by Women's Sport and Fitness Magazine as one of the 20 most influential women in sports. Anne began her soccer career as one of the first girls to play in a Northern California youth club. She was selected onto the, one of the very first California Olympic Development Program teams before she was recruited by Harvard University, where she played all four years. Anne, I want to thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast. Definitely. If we could just start a little bit on like your background, your journey. I started playing soccer when I was about eight. And at that time, I was the only girl in the whole league, believe it or not. And that was just an incredibly formative experience. It just kind of set the course for, honestly, for the rest of my life, personally, professionally, academically. And I just love the game. Um, but there were no other girls playing. And I felt this kind of um, responsibility to every other girl out there when I was on the field to prove that girls could play. Um, if you're in a sea of guys, you just kind of inherently feel that way. <laughs> I could see as the boys were looking at our team every, every Saturday, they'd look, these little, you know, they'd, they'd try to size up the other team and see if they'd be able to beat them just by looking at them. So they would look at our team and they'd just go down the line and all of a sudden they'd stop when they'd see me because I was this little girl. And they were just absolutely shocked to see a girl out there. And they would whisper, but I could hear them because they were very close. And they'd say, look, they have a girl on their team. They're going to be so easy. We're going to beat them. And I would hear that, and I would just be like, you just defeated yourself. Like, you're not going to get by me. So I was this left back, and you know, I just, it was my mission in life not to let any of those right wingers you know, get by me. And as I grew up, I played, as I grew up, the sport of women's soccer grew up. And so the Olympic development program was just starting. So I had a chance to play on a select team. I was the first Bay Oaks soccer team for girls. I was on that team. Then it was the first time we could try out for our district and state and region and all that. And I made it up to, I don't even know if it was the national team or regional team. We made, I made it. And then they said, okay, great. You made it. Um, we tried out for like a week in Idaho, a week in San Diego, and then they said, you get to go home now. And we we're like, well, what do you mean? We just made the team. And they said, there's nobody for you to play. We are a paper team, is what they called us. So then I got recruited at Harvard, and I went and played at Harvard for four years. Um, that was another just opportunity that could not have happened without soccer. The year I graduate was the year that they had their first World Cup, although they're not calling it the World Cup. It was 91 in China. I think they're calling it a championship um, for some like reason. a world championship, right? Yeah, yeah. So the first official World Cup was 95. Um, but just kind of seeing the progression of the sport. And when I left, I, uh, when I left college, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, like most people. And I was working three jobs. I think I was working for Kaiser. I was working at a cocktail as a cocktail waitress, and I came back and coached Berkeley High. 
because um, I was really upset that every year at Berkeley High they never had a women's coach. We waited like the day before practice uh, tryouts to find out we actually had a coach. Like multiple years, I was on the verge of trying out for the boys team because they could just never find a women's coach. So I just, when I graduated college, I thought I'm going to go back and coach Berkeley High for a couple years. So I was doing those three jobs, and I ran into a guy who was starting a nonprofit organization. A guy I'd gone to college with, who I knew, an acquaintance. And he was starting, he had this stack of proposals in his hand, and he said, oh, I'm starting a nonprofit. And I said, I don't really know what a nonprofit is. I mean, it was kind of sad. You know, I grew up in Berkeley, still no clue. So I took it home and I read it. It was just a proposal on paper. He hadn't started it yet. And it was basically um, an urban Peace Corps. So starting an organization called uh, the Urban Service Project, and it would recruit like Cal students and train them and then place them in 18 months of service, basically. And it was one of the first AmeriCorps programs. So I joined him. We started, and that was my first kind of startup journey. And it was taking an idea on paper into an organization. And it was an amazing, amazing opportunity to kind of see how you build something. And then from there on out, I just continued to build. Um, but I kind of moved into sport, kind of thought really deeply about what was, I was most passionate about, and it was women's issues and girls' issues and sports. And so then I left and started a nonprofit called Sports Bridge, and that uh, had the mission to empower girls through sports and leadership. And I continued working in the nonprofit sector, doing a lot of sport for social change work, starting up organizations. I worked for Mr. Wally Haas, whose name is all over this campus. Yeah. <laughs> he started an organization in Oakland called, um, it was called uh, Team Up for Youth, and now it's called Coaching Corps. And I actually started Coaching Corps for them. I was their first director. It was Wally's idea. And then they came to me while I was working for them and said, hey, can you start this program called Coaching Corps? And then lastly, and then I'll just stop because I'm talking a lot, um, I knew I wanted to start a mission-driven company. I was really inspired by Patagonia, Warby Parker, Tom's, um, companies that I thought were doing well and doing good. And I had kind of looked for this kind of opportunity for about 10 or 15 years, and I couldn't find the right idea and I couldn't find the right team. Through another job that I had, I met a gentleman named Keely Wax, and he reached out to me after a, ch a chance meeting and said, hey, I have this idea. Do you want to have lunch? Um, he was the head of communications at Cliff Bar uh, in Emeryville at the time, and so we had lunch, and he pitched this idea for Goal 5. Um, and I said, that's it. That's the idea. That's the team. That's where I want to be for the rest of my career. Amazing. So that's where I am today. Why soccer? What, what about the sport kind of connected with you at this deep level that you know has kind of carried you through your whole life really. yeah you know it was just a, a fluky thing honestly my dad never played but he had two sons and a daughter and it was no different for him to see if his daughter wanted to play a sport than his sons and he said hey do you want to try out for the soccer team and all of us were like we don't even know what soccer is but sure you know so he just took me out there and it was really like just love at first sight. You know, the first day I started to try out and played, I loved the game. And then you go to Harvard and play high-level soccer in, in college. You know, can you kind of identify any sort of lessons that the game started to teach you, and whether it was the sport itself or your teammates or your coaches that, you know, kind of really impacted you? 
the thing I think I, I start with, though, I lead with that as kind of was the most important thing that I think I gained from sport is confidence. What I think I've realized is it's very hard for girls to gain confidence. And whether it's soccer or another sport, any, any sport, what I think is so powerful about this for women is that women um, not only learn all the lessons that I think you're familiar with, um, you know, hard work, risk-taking, goal-setting, all of those wonderful lessons that you get from sport, but for women, they also get to feel very powerful and in a physical way in their body, and they get to see their body as something that's very powerful, and that um, is very much a confidence builder. It kind of takes them out of their body. They don't see their body as just something to put makeup on or clothes, you know, dress up, but all of a sudden they feel this very powerful body that they're in. And I think that's a very important opportunity that a not that teaches girls and women confidence in a society that's not giving those kind of messages to them. So I think that's probably the most powerful thing that I gained from sport. Um, and the other way to build confidence is when you when you attain these kind of success after success after little success. And sport is a great opportunity to do that, and that really helps people uh, build their confidence. 100% agree, and I think it's like anything. Is right. You, yeah. you, there's that process of mastery, and then you start to see yourself grow and develop, and you get confident in your ability to grow and develop and handle adversity and a lot of different things like that. So is that kind of what, what, what you mean by you know, confidence? I think it can show up in so many ways. You know, it could be... Um, you know, walking in a room, into a room of uh, pitching this company, you know, for the first time we were finalists in the Harvard Business School New Venture Contest, and I'd never pitched in front of a room of VCs. Um, And the first panel I had to get through was a panel of all men, you know, seven men. Here I was, a woman-led company pitching a four-women, by-women company, Um, you know, and just be able to have the yeah, the confidence and the poise to walk into that first room and just, you know, feel confident in what we're building and, you know, value and know what you're talking about and um, and then get all the way to the final and pitch in front of 150 of those people um, and seven judges, one whom sits on the board of Nike. <laughs> so, you know, it can show up in that setting. Um, it could just show up in... Um, your very personal way, I think, as, as young people grow up and they go through their personal relationships. And then last, you know, I think risk-taking. You know, you're constantly, like, with this company, every single day we're taking risks. You know, I might fail, but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go I'm for it. leave it out there. Yeah, right. And I, th- I think that's confidence. You have a career at Harvard and you find yourself in... You know, kind of the, the nonprofit world, and then it seems like pretty quickly you sort of transition to that feeling that sport gave you. Mm-hmm. Look to spread that with some of the organizations you part with, SportsBridge or mm-hmm. Right to Play, and some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So, can you talk about sort of your desire to transfer that feeling and, mm-hmm. and use that as a vehicle, sports specifically and soccer mm-hmm. specifically, to empower yeah. you know females? I'm sure you feel that way too. You know, that feeling of wanting to give back. Like, you've experienced something really special um, and powerful, and you know it formed you and helped you, and so, you know, feeling like you want to pass that on to someone else who, in the girls that we worked with in um, 
SportsBridge, most of them lived in the mission. Most of them came from immigrant families, and a lot of them didn't have families that saw sport as something that was valuable for girls, quite honestly. They felt like, you know, culturally it was important for their brothers and that it was more important for them to help with the housework and help raising their siblings. They didn't really, they just didn't understand why sport would be important for their daughters. It was an opportunity to, to educate not only the girls, but the parents. You know, we were, we'd have meetings with the parents and just kind of lay out, you know, like, hey, if your soccer, your daughter's in, involved in sports, she's going to go farther in education because all of these statistics are out there. She's going to go farther in education. She's less likely to do drugs, you know, all those kinds of things. So we had to kind of just educate people around the importance of sport for, for girls. Um, and of course, when the girls went through the program, um, you know, it was life-changing. I'm really curious to see how, in your experience from, you know, kind of where you started, where a very different world as far as the programs available to young female athletes, you know, how, how is that transitioning? Because now you're almost on the other side of it, and it's just really interesting to, you know, kind of, from your perspective, how it's how it's changed, how it stayed the same, you know, as far the as... Sport? Oh, the sport? The sport, and then also opportunities for women and, mm-hmm. and, and people and, and families getting more educated around promoting women yeah. to go out there and express yeah. themselves athletically and not be afraid to do so. So much progress has been made. I, I've recently started talking a lot about Title IX. The reason we're seeing so much change in sport for women right now, and just in general, the leadership wave that we're seeing in the country, comes a lot back comes back to Title IX. So if we think about Title IX, we're almost we're approaching almost 50 years of Title IX. And before Title IX, one in 38 girls played sports, and after Title IX, one in three might be up to one in two. So we're looking at like two generations now of women who have played sports their entire lives. I'm the first generation, and my daughters, you know, in their 20s, late teens are the second generation who've played their entire lives and coming back to this confidence thing. So they're going to play the sport and they're going to run for Congress. You know, they're going to think they can start a sports company. They're going to become the president of Dick's Sporting Goods. There's a female president there right now. This moment in time feels really different. It feels like we're a part of this wave that is not going to turn back. You kind of do all this this work in, in the nonprofit sector, then you kind of go into more consulting work and you know, helping organizations and identify um, you know, leadership and how you ID people. And can you kind of talk a little bit about your experience with you know, identifying potential leaders and not growing leaders inside of those or- respective organizations? When I was younger starting organizations, I was terrible at hiring people. And I was really bad at kind of building teams, to be honest. You know, And I didn't really know how to manage people. I was very young and I was kind of your quintessential visionary um, and I was very focused on building something and external and my it's not that I didn't like the people that worked with me or for me it was that I just felt like they could lead themselves and lead on their own and the culture of the organization would just kind of emerge on its own and that was not the case <laughs> So coming full circle, it felt like it was coming full circle to do four years of executive search where it was very much learning how to trust but verify, you know, when you're hiring people and really digging down and figuring out um, the right fit. So really understanding like an organizational culture and then who you're hiring and 
you know, bringing these people and these organizations together, is that really the right fit? Um, was how I kind of approached search. Um, so that was just incredibly helpful. And then just getting to work with other CEOs, board members, you know, and get to kind of have a view of what great leadership looked like and pretty mediocre leadership and then sometimes some terrible leadership and four years getting to kind of study. That's why I did that work. I think you and I have that in common. You know, I had this real fascination with Curiosity leadership. and learning and yeah. yeah. And, and so from that, like what, what is good leadership and then how, kind of how, you, how would you define that? I think it boils down to love. I have become a better leader and I'm still learning every day, getting better, uh, and I will be the rest of my life. But I think that um, at the core, it's me in relationship to people that I'm working with. And um, being in a place where I genuinely care about them as people, as we're all going through this journey together, and hey, I am, you know, I happen to be at the home and I am leading. But I very much subscribe to the servant leader model, and I'm in service to them. So, and then you, yeah. so now you are where you are, right? As the CEO and co-founder of Goal Five, and mm-hmm. and having learned all these lessons, both you know through successes and you know possible some failures as well, and some growing experiences along the way. Mm-hmm. And you know, kind of as you you all were thinking about, obviously, this was a purpose-driven company, mm-hmm. but the core foundational values and how the culture of the company was going to be defined and 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 who was going to do that and how you kind of built almost this idea of you're probably going to have an internal culture that's going to help hold up those values, but then at the same time, you'll be able to externally communicate your mission and build a sort of a coalition around it, which kind of seems to be you know the cause mm-hmm. um, that you guys are very much active in. So can you kind of talk a little bit about, about that? I think all of us co-founders and then our core team came to this company from the mission side and the movement. And it was really born out of the 2015 World Cup, so last World Cup, watching these incredible athletes uh, and the U.S. team. um, And at the same time, listening to the sub-narrative around that World Cup, around inequality, and just feeling like, we want to do something, you know, to celebrate these incredible athletes who are not being really respected. Um, so that's, that's how Goal 5 was born. Um, but we also, um, as we looked at kind of the product side and the apparel side and the opportunity for a company in the market, what we were seeing was that women still have to wear men's clothing, it's really hard for a lot of people, usually men, to understand that that problem still exists. It's actually called shrink and pink. Um, most companies just take a men's silhouette and make it smaller and shrink it, put, make it pink or purple. Um, and it just doesn't fit. And you can see it immediately out on the field when girls have to modify their shorts, they roll their shorts, they roll their sleeves, they bunch their shirts. My daughter put on her shirt today. She's a coach over at a soccer club. And her sleeves were down to here. And she's like, take a picture of me, Mom. (laughs) I got to be in your company. Here's another one. Um, But for us, the apparel was just another symbol of inequality. Like, hey, the women aren't being paid. They have inequal, you know, inferior playing surfaces. 
you know, and their gear doesn't fit them. Maybe the, the women at the top level, right? Maybe their gear fits them. It's custom made for them. But if you're a girl or woman. To the everyday female Exactly. Athlete. Going out to, you know, any store, you're not going to, you may not find anything. The prize for us is to become a successful company. And then what are we going to do with that money and those resources? Um, that's the exciting part for us to, to think about um, social impact that we can have with our resources. How have you all identified where where it makes most sense to start? Obviously yeah. from the apparel, but I mean, it's, there seems to be so much more. It is it's a it's a cause, right? And so it's mm-hmm. it's it's, mm-hmm. it's 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 really it's kind of a big big task. So it's a huge wondering, task. Wondering how you guys are, how you all are thinking about it? Well, a couple of things for me. Um, I got to design the framework for our mission, and it was super exciting. It was like approaching this blank canvas. Um, I had worked with many companies over the years from the other side of the table. So when I was at SportsBridge, I spent five years developing a relationship with Nike. Um, that was fantastic. You know, we worked with their athletes, we worked with their marketing department, we worked with their foundation, um, and I worked with a lot of other companies over the years. And I got to kind of take what I felt worked well and didn't work so well and create my own framework. And so for goal five, what we ended up uh, doing is selecting one strategic nonprofit partner. They're called Street Football World, and they're like a network that um, inc- kind of is the umbrella for all these, all the soccer org- for social change organizations in the world. So they're our strategic partner, and then we decided, okay, we want to work with to start three soccer nonprofits. We decided we wanted to make it international, um, who are on the ground doing this work really important work, and who have either a sole focus on working with girls or at least they have um, an intent to build their girls' program. So we work with Street Football World, and we ended up identifying three nonprofits. One, Soccer Without Borders, which is here in the U.S. One is Moving the Goalposts, which is in Kenya, and one is Seprahoven, which is in Costa Rica. And for me, um, the one thing I didn't like so much about the nonprofit-private partnerships was... Um, how often it was kind of flavor of the month for a company. You know, they might pick girls' sports, you know, this month, and then they might be like, oh, we have a different focus now. (laughs) We're moving on to mental health, you know. And that's all good, but not so good for the nonprofit partners. So our commitment to our nonprofit partners was to select them and continue to work with them forever, Um, assuming that the partnership is good and healthy and thriving, and then layer on more partnerships as the company would grow. The big vision for the mission side of our work is to follow the model that Patagonia has. I don't know if you've heard of um, 1% for the Planet. Basically, what they realized, which was brilliant, is they just one company can't really move the needle, right, on environmental sustainability. And they've brought in all these other stakeholders. So they brought in a lot of other companies who kind of sign on to that pledging 1% for the Planet and doing a lot of other things and just kind of joining, joining with them. So... That's a similar vision for us. We envision 5% for gender equality. Again, you know, it's a very big <laughs> uh, problem that we're well, trying yeah, to solve. Well, yeah, that was my question. It's, it's mm-hmm. kind of what does success look like for, for yeah. Goal 5. Yeah. For Goal 5? Yeah. And maybe it's, like it's, maybe it's hard to actually outcome. untangle from, you know, promotion of equality in, in sport. We work together, you know, but we're really a bifurcated company. I mean, we have, we're a consumer product company first. Um, well, equally, I'd say, you know, to our mission. 
right now in our startup phase, um, I'd say we're, you know, heavily focused on looking at our product and making sure it's a beautiful premium quality product that's desirable. The vision for the company, what I've become really clear on in the last few months is that we're establishing a whole new category. We, the vision is to go from the soccer brand for her to the sports brand for her. And the way I can explain this is there's a lot of companies out there that are in the fitness category. So there's Athleta, Lulu, Title IX Sports. Um, and then there's a lot of big companies like Nike, Adidas, Under Armour that have women's sports apparel, a small little piece of the pie. Um, we are going to be the first company that is creating, if you can believe it, it's kind of hard to believe, but the first company that's focused on the female athlete and building apparel for them. So we are just starting a conversation with a very large sporting goods company. Um, and they have identified this exact problem and they approached us, the president approached us about a month ago and they said, we have a huge problem. We, our customers are coming to us and saying, um, we're hearing from them very emotionally. And I said, what do, you, what do you mean emotionally? And they said, the girls are saying, this isn't fair. You don't like us. You like our brother more than you like us. And what they were telling them was, we come into your store, we come into specifically the team sport categories and the soccer, basketball, lacrosse, and there's nothing for us. And so uh, this big company that we're talking to said to us, you know, we knew we had a problem in 2016. The last 18 months, this has a huge, become a huge problem for us. Um, have you thought about going into basketball? And we said, resounding yes. I mean, that's part of the vision. So I thought that's important because that is what success looks like for us, is to build the first sports apparel brand for the female athlete. What about for you individually? I know as a leader it could be challenging to almost remove yourself from the company because mm -hmm. obviously it's who you are and what you're responsible for, but mm -hmm. you know, how do you kind of take stock and pause and reflect and analyze where you are and give yourself a self-assessment along the way. How, how does that process work for, for you? I mean, because mm -hmm. we talked about it earlier, it's one of the benefits of being an uh, athlete is constant, you get these constant points of feedback all the yeah. time, right? And yeah. so, but as a leader of an organization, that seems to be you know, harder to come by, so you have, really have to look for it and look for those opportunities. It is very hard. You know, I think that the people that work with you um, some of them have a really hard time, you know, giving feedback. Others, not so, not so, not so hard for them. So I just, I really try to be open and solicit feedback, pushback um, from the people that I work with and try to make it as comfortable for them as possible to do that. Um, I also, though, you know, uh, expect a level of respect and buy-in. So, like, if people join the team, they join the Goal 5 team, you know, there's, a, there's an expectation that everybody is on that team and everybody is supporting each other and supporting me as a leader. Um, but the support and the buy-in, total buy-in, shouldn't be confused with agreement, like that everyone has to agree with me or with each other that there is, a, we need this healthy, like, like I said, pushback, feedback, new ideas, questioning things. 
um, you know, that's going to build, that's going to enable us to build a successful company. It's really interesting, you know, speaking with my, my former rugby coach here at Cal, Coach Clark, and he has a really interesting way of kind of identifying you know, the difference between what makes sport unique from what, what is really interesting based on what you said earlier from sort of your leadership model, which is you know, very care and love driven, which is super important. He said, but the interesting thing about high performing teams is that they're actually, is there's this idea of conditional versus unconditional, right? Where we love our brother mm-hmm. and sister unconditionally mm-hmm. and you can always have care, but at the same time, there's this, this balance, this dichotomy of it being a very conditional environment that requires people to buy into mm-hmm. what the team's trying to do, right? Mm-hmm. And, and what's required of you as a contributor to the team. And so it's, it's really interesting balance, I guess, as a leader of the organization mm-hmm. to, you know, you set your stall out from a standards point of view, but at the same time, be caring of those people individually as well. I love that. Yeah, you have to show up. Yeah. I mean, because ultimately, as athletes, right, or any member of team, mm-hmm. it's still, we still individually have to perform, which helps the team perform right. at you the best. you still have to show up at your best. Can you talk a little bit about how sport can be a vehicle for social change and and because you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's what we're kind of seeing here is is yeah. is and you alluded to the fact with mm-hmm. you know title nine and and women's rise and participation mm-hmm. say in politics and these other yeah and, you know it's, it's really interesting to kind of think about the power the of sport in that context you can really i mean we we've talked mostly about on the individual level right how it's really transformative in terms of um transforming girls and women's self-esteem so it's very, you can talk about it at that level. I think you can talk about it at, it's transformative at a community level. Um, there's this whole thing called the girl effect. So um, I think Nike was a big part of this too, um, the Gates Foundation. But it basically is the premise that if you help empower girls and women in a community, that helps to empower the entire community because the women and, and girls are such a, a strong part of that fabric of that community. So there's, you can look at change at the individual level, the community level, and then this is probably obvious too to you and your listeners, but there's, it's incredible like common you know, level or, um, and bridge to different, ki- different cultures and communities. I'll never forget this one um, article I read many years ago. Um, I think it was during the Afghanistan war. And there was describing a military base where they had both Afghani and U.S. soldiers um, on the same base. And they didn't really interact. And it was, there was a lot of tension between the two of them in those two groups until they started playing soccer. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. And it kind of, the article just described how it just changed the entire dynamic of the base and the relationships and their, you know, from there on out, there started to be real communication between the two groups. I love that because you know, I played overseas and internationally for rugby for a long time, and and I know this is the same case in soccer. Soccer is even though we might be from different places, different backgrounds, speak different languages, mm-hmm. we all share the language of sport yeah. or rugby or soccer. Yeah. yeah so it's a, it's an incredible connector, right? It's because it's something we can all share. And to your point, it, it doesn't matter your gender. It matters that yeah. you, you show up and do your best and compete and you'll be judged based on that, which is all anyone can really ask. Yeah, I've heard it described as a religion, you know, like soccer especially, just the way it's played worldwide. Is there anything else you want to share or No, just thank you for giving me the opportunity to come talk with you. And well, I'm the thankful one. 
No, it's just really great. You don't, you don't, I don't stop, you know, normally <laughs> to think about these things. You just keep going. So I appreciate the opportunity and also just the, um, what you shared uh, that you learned on your team with your coach. That was very powerful for me. It's been amazing to spend this time with you. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you. This week's takeaways look at how sport can be a vehicle for empowering others and how businesses can be built to create more than just economic impact. For Anne, the power of sport has always been self-evident. And throughout her career, she's seen how those who played sports at a young age entered into the business world with several skills, risk-taking, resilience, hard work, and confidence. When it comes to leadership, Anne subscribes to the servant leadership model, that genuinely caring about your teammates and coworkers is important to building a culture of success. Trust but verify when it comes to hiring. Do your due diligence and don't hire based solely on skill. Teammates need to be the right culture fit, otherwise they might not be aligned with the mission. Soliciting feedback is important. Support for the leadership team and mission buy-in shouldn't be confused with general agreement. Everyone doesn't have to agree all the time. There must be room for healthy discussion and new ideas to keep the company on track. And finally, companies can be catalysts for good. Similar to companies like Patagonia, Anne has framed Goal 5 as a social enterprise, where they are producing a product that serves a real consumer need, but is also targeting the larger social issue of gender inequality as part of their business model. Doing well and doing good, all at the same time.